Hey, it's Jonathan. I'm seriously jazzed. We're about a week away now. I know, I know. You've been hearing me talk about my new book, How to Live a Good Life, for a handful of weeks now in the start of every episode, and there's a reason for it. I've been asked recently, why did you write it? And the reason I really wrote it is because I want it to matter. We're at a point in the world where there are a lot of people suffering. There are a lot of people who can't figure out how to stand in their potential. And I would love for the book to become a tool to help you move from a place of stifled potential, of stifled identity, of not really understanding how to get what you need out of the world, to feeling like, yeah, at least I have some guidance, and then I actually have something to do. The book gives you something to do, and that is what really matters to me. So if you're interested in learning more, you can download the first chapter completely for free. You don't need an email or anything at goodlifeproject.com slash book. If you pre-order before the 18th, the publication date, also all sorts of really fun, cool bonuses. And you can help us plant trees in our quest to plant 10,000 trees, a good life forest. So again, more info at goodlifeproject.com slash book, or just click the link in the show notes today. Now on to our show. Can you just stay curious just a little bit longer? in a rush to advice and action just a little more slowly. And it's going to make such a big difference for everybody involved. I've known this week's guest, Michael Bungus Daniel, for quite a while now. And he's got a new book out called The Coaching Habit. And at first, I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm not really a coach. Maybe this doesn't really apply to me. And I started talking to him about it. And then I actually read it. And I realized... This is not a book for coaches. In fact, it's a summary of his entire philosophy, pretty much of life. And what he's done is he's essentially taken the seven most important questions that anybody could ask, pretty much anybody else, when you're, when you're looking to be of service in a really powerful way and share them in, in the order that it's most intelligent to ask them also. And what I realized is that this is actually an astonishingly powerful tool not just for coaching, but for being in a relationship with anybody, for mentoring, for guiding, for helping, for playing any sort of leadership role. I found it really powerful. But this conversation is not all about the book. We do touch on it towards the end. This conversation goes deep into some really powerful ideas around how to get the most out of life, around how to build things, around how to handle adversity. And we also share a little bit of intersecting backstories. So Michael is uh, one of my favorite people. He's insanely wise and funny and humble. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app, 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. 
Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. We're hanging out here at Good Life Project HQ on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Which is awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> bright, shiny orange table. Very bright. It's designed to create happiness. I feel happy. Thanks, man. I came in sad. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I'm happy. It's kind of a gray day outside. <laughs> it's it's like of... the antidote. It all works, man. And we've known each other, what, I, do you even remember how we met? Was it through Pam or something like that? Probably Pam Slim. She is right, the Right, she is the connector, connector right? <laughs> like, all, all like... Every relationship in some way points back like to Pam Slim. She's the eve of, of this right. generation. It's like everybody comes down up. I'm ninth generation Pam Slim. That's how I describe myself. Four degrees of separation, ninth generation, twice removed. That's right. Yeah. But a long time. It feels like we've kind of walked walk paths together for it quite does, a while. It does, right? Yeah, it's so interesting to sort we of like... We were so young when we met. Now oh. We're gray and bags under my eyes. You have gray. At least you have hair. So... <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, it's so kind of fun just to see how there's sort of a group of us that I kind of see as sort of moving into the world in a similar way at around right. a similar time and how everyone's really just kind of gone off and done similar things in one way, but also really profoundly different things in a lot of yeah. different ways. Well, I think what's interesting in part is watching us find focus. I mean, that's one of the cool things about you. Talk, well, is, talk to me, yeah, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? You know, Jim Collins, you know, he's, he's written 18 books, all that sound, they're all like the same title. They're good to great, goodish to greatish, <laughs> the road to good goodness via greatness. I mean, they're all kind of the same, but he, he has a gift for metaphor. And he, when talking about strategy, he was saying, look, the way you figure out what to do is you fire bullets and then you fire cannonballs. Mm. Bullets are kind of low-risk experiments, tested out, trying to find where the target is. But yeah. then when you find the target, that's when you fire the cannonball. And I think his point is, for too many people, they fire the cannonball too early. They're like, here it is. I've got an idea. I'm just going to commit everything. Nah. And then that's kind of miserable. Or they never have the courage to fire the cannonball. They never go, oh, I've got the target. This is the thing. I'm just too scared to, to mm. commit. And I look, you know, I've seen all sorts of iterations of Jonathan Fields show up. There's jonathanfields.com, where you had that slightly scary photo of you, kind of like <laughs> overly intense eyes going on, I don't know, stubble or something. And then you did the, the writers, the tribe, the writing right. tribe piece. And there's been other things that you've there's kind been of... been a lot of iterations. Yeah, you've yeah. done a bunch of things. And then it just feels like with Good Life Project... You found a you found a home, mm. like you found a center, and I know you you can't help but experiment around that and do cool yeah. sub brands of that. But it feels like in in GLP, there's just something you've landed there, and I love yeah. that. And I feel that's the same with other people we know who've done. They're kind of like I tried a bunch of things, but they kind of they circle, 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 and they seem to be landing on something important to them. Yeah, I I think I agree with that. And I love that analogy also, the Jim Collins analogy. I never really um, heard it said that way, but it makes it so visual and makes it so much like, oh, well, yeah, of course. Right. And then, and it seems like you've done the same thing also in a certain way with Box of Crayons yeah. and sort of like the bigger brand and the, the body of intellectual property you built around yeah. it. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, 
But I mean, I kind of stumbled into this whole thing <laughs> accidentally. I mean, a mutual friend of ours, Scott Stratton. Yeah. So I don't remember if you remember what Scott did before he became the unmarketing he, guy. He was the, the video making guy. He was guy. the video guy, right? right? He yeah. kind of created this cool video about time, right. <laughs> which, you know, was a bit cliched, but hugely successful. Right. I mean, it's massive I viral hit. Yeah. And I was like, well, I've met Scott Stratton. If he can do it, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Shout Scott, you, Scott. we love you. Yeah, we yeah, exactly. We do love Scott. So I did this little video called "The Eight Irresistible Principles of Fun," yeah. and it was a little animated, and it just kind of blew up. Yeah. And you know, I got it got tweeted by Tim Ferriss, which was like you know, right. a, a little starstruck moment. Is that still up? By the way, can we link yeah, to that? That's, that's right, around cool. somewhere. Because um, that that was one of the first things that I remember seeing, and I was like, ah, oh, this is just awesome, and I started sharing it like crazy. Right, also. right. So. That kind of accidentally pushed me into this whole world of self-development and self-help because yeah. I actually created that because I'd been inspired by another guy called the the strategic coach. Ah, I can't remember his name, but he's basically Dan Sullivan. Dan Sullivan, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I saw Dan Sullivan speak, and he said, "Look, here's the way to become successful. One, you know, one one route." It's about how you identify yourself. And he said, look, pretend you're a dentist. You start off claiming to be a dentist. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that, but you are your profession. Then you shift to becoming an entrepreneur who practices dentistry. And that's actually quite a radical shift because you understand that it's about marketing and selling and building a business, not just doing the technical skill. And then you're like, I'm an entrepreneur who creates intellectual property around dentistry. Mm. And when you create intellectual property, then, you be, then you're able to scale. Then you're able to have more impact. And I was like, oh, that's great. Oh, if only I had intellectual property. <laughs> oh, man. I seem to have signed up to give a talk. I was giving a talk to some coaches in Toronto. It's like in a car. Yeah. yeah. I was giving a talk about why people should create intellectual property, and I didn't have any IP of my own. Aye. So in about, in about 20 minutes, I sat down and I just wrote this thing called The Eight Irresistible Principles of Fun. It's one of those things where you go, that was a that was lightning in a bottle. Right? So that was just like that one of those channeling moments. Yeah, it was where just it just twenty like minutes where I just out. went bang, and I was like, "That's pretty good." It's amazing because <laughs> when you look at it, it's like, "Oh, this he must have been working on this for a long time." Right. <laughs> no, nah, you know, I spent eighteen yeah. years trying to recreate that moment. <laughs> nothing, nothing. I'm like, "How about this?" No, no, it's it's almost the same, but it's not nearly as good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we started off in in that space, and I. Box of Crayons came along as a name, which was really, again, I was giving it, this is how I work, yeah. under panic, right? I'm giving a talk to a bunch of coaches about the importance of branding. Right. So I invented Michael's three laws of branding, and my company name failed all three of my own laws. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, I've got, really I've got six weeks to come up with a better name. And I went through a bunch of them. I was going to call myself Espresso Coaching at one stage because I'm like, Espresso, it's like, Italy and chic and right. ciao bella, Energizing. yeah, exactly, kind of endless, effortlessly cool, right. all that sort of it's stuff. Got the hipster thing, right. guy. So I email my friends. I go, okay, espresso coaching. What do you think? And they write back, going, you know, when I think of espresso, I think it's expensive, bitter, doesn't last very long, <laughs> stains your teeth, right. drunken by pretentious people. I was like, oh, that's, okay, that's not that's it. not what I was going for. <laughs> but then when Box of Crayons showed up, I was like, again, it was like, oh, that's that's just a great name. Yeah. But you know, we've gone through a whole bunch of things trying to go. Are we doing self help? Are we not doing? Are we doing business focused? And now we're just landed in this place where we're a training company. Right. Again, surprising because I'm pretty skeptical of most training, and we're really focused on giving practical coaching skills to busy managers so they can coach in ten minutes or less. Yeah. 
and this is completely personal. So, because it's a personal <laughs> well, curiosity I never saw for that me, coming in right? A GLP interview. <laughs> um, no, but it's about me, man, not you. <laughs> right, 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 right. I want to benefit from what from right. what you just said because. You know, you said it's personal development. You know, it's it's self help. Yeah, and it's funny because when I actually think of you, those aren't the 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 words that I associate with. I think of you. I'm like, okay, really smart business process, sort of like mining and and revealing human potential. But and within the context right. of work, right? Are are you? And what's interesting is so. so with Good Life Project, I've kind of started to step into this umbrella of like quote. Uh, personal development, self-help, and I really struggle with right. that moniker. And you just sort of like own that as as you. Are you comfortable with that? Not hugely, yeah. just because it's such a – there's so much bad stuff mm. <laughs> in this space. You know, stuff that's kind of mushy or pastel-colored or or just – so what I want, what I love is stuff that has rigor – but stuff that has lightness as well. Mm. I want I want a joy and a lightness and a fun to it. And <laughs> so, well, here's a story that probably sums this up. So, five or six years ago, I was more. In, you know, I was coaching. I was part of the ICF, the International Coach Federation. I went to speak at their big national meeting, and I came up with this thing called the Five Unspeakable Truths About Coaching. <laughs> and it was all about this. I'm going to talk about the dark side of coaching, because when you get to these conferences. And while there are many wonderful you know, people who are coaches and who I know and I love and we know and we love, you know, Karen Wright, everybody else, these conferences I found overwhelming because it was a little kind of self-congratulatory about how wonderful we all are. Look how enlightened we are. And it didn't feel like there was that quite enough people doing the work mm-hmm. to mine the mess, <laughs> which is the interesting place. So we did this thing called the five unspeakable truths about coaching. You know, things like you know, I hate my clients. <laughs> I, I get bored by my clients. I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing some of the time. Not that this is the whole truth. It's just some of the truth some of the time. Yeah. And, you know, the that unspeakable whole, part. Yeah. And that whole Jungian piece about the gold is in the dark. You know, the, the, if when you find a way to embrace the shadow side, you become more whole. You know, mm. that, that Jung quote, I'd rather be whole than good. I love that. You know, it's like Brene Brown and all that sort of stuff about, Embrace that the vulnerability and the messiness of it. Anyway, long story short, it all, we had a little bit of a tempest and a teacup with the ICF because they weren't happy about that whole <laughs> that whole process. The board got up and walked out halfway through. It was a, it was a bit of a mess, oh, but yeah. that to me, when this self help stuff is is not at its best, it's when it's it doesn't have the willingness to look hard at itself, but also treat itself with lightness and a sense of humor. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, I mean, when it comes down to it, we, you, me, lots of the people we know and love are in this business of going, how do we, how do we live a good life? Yeah. You know, how do we show up and do live a life that has meaning to us, but also has impact in the world and makes a difference. Yeah. And yeah, you you kind of want it to transcend the, the the self help ghetto because that can be a bit of a, a less rewarding place yeah, to label to get stuck with you know and and maybe that quote ghetto exists in almost every profession but it does seem that the the self help um, world the personal development self whatever name you want it has a reputation um, for for a certain type of person a certain type mm-hmm. of approach and what's interesting for for me is I've I've always just felt like I'm so not that person. And, and if that, that person and that approach resonates and actually, you know, like 
touches down and helps somebody else, God bless. Right. You know, but it's just, it doesn't resonate with me as an individual as who I am or my lens on the world or the approach that I bring to problem solving and serving. So I've always, and it was interesting, my overlay is that, well, the entire industry has that particular association that I don't really want to be associated with. It. And right. I've had to get comfortable lately with the idea that when it comes down to it, I've been, what I started to realize last year was that, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn, you know, entrepreneurship and strategy are the things where I have all the endorsements. But what I realized was that, yeah, I do like entrepreneurship. I like making things. But what I really love about it is that it's a stunning canvas and gauntlet for revealing and expressing and improving the human condition. Right. And so I'm really just using it as a lever. Right. You know, right. but what I'm really interested in is human potential. And when it comes down to it, that means I'm part of this world. I just, it's the idea of I'm trying to get comfortable right now of carving out my own right. definition within that space. So who the, in that space, yeah. who are the people you admire and who seem to transcend? Yeah. It? You know, it's interesting. There's sort of two ends of the spectrum. I'm very science-based, but I'm very spiritually open. I'm not super metaphysically wired, but so what I'm drawn to always on the one end of the spectrum is applied positive psychology. Right. Very, like I'm constantly devouring right. papers, academic papers right. and talking to researchers and practitioners because I love to see science validated processes that have replicable exactly. outcomes. Exactly. That's awesome. Right. You know, I'm, I'm less interested in, Hey, let's, you know, try this thing where I, you know, it's worked here and there, but there's no, there's no validation. Right. Then the other side of the spectrum, and I'm curious where you fall with this also. So I want you to answer the same question is thousands of year old Eastern philosophy. Mm -hmm. Buddhism is something I'm very drawn to. What I found is that my experience has been increasingly, as I know more and more about each is that a lot of positive psychology is fundamentally just the scientific validation of Buddhist practices. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly. That's why the Dalai Lama is going, yeah, yeah. let's test right. this stuff. Yeah. And if it's if you show me it's scientifically wrong, I'm happy to change my mind on it. Right, which is what I love about it. It's right. not like this is the gospel is dogma, you shall yeah. follow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how would you answer that same question? So the thing that rings my bells are elegant models that have been shown to work. Mm. So... And I get pulled in all sorts of places. Like, you know, I love the periodic table. This <laughs> is weird, but it's like for, for years I had the periodic table as my shower curtains just because I just love the elegance That's of it. Awesome. It's, it's like I just love how it works. It's like how did you figure all that out? It's amazing. <laughs> but then you look at things like – and I love models that, that, that work with the complexity of the human condition mm. rather than reduce it to here are the eight steps. Yeah. So when I think about change, for instance, there's, a, there's an approach to change in this world called positive deviance. Chip and Dan Heath talk about it briefly in their book. The guy who started it, I mean, it's a great story. He, he, he was leading a nonprofit, I think, in Asia somewhere. It was all about trying to deal with uh, impoverished children. He's American. The Americans have done something to annoy the government, whichever government it was. And they basically went, right, you've got six months to sort out you know, impoverished children or you're out. Oy. And he's like, oh, man, we've been here for 40 years. We haven't made a dent yet. What are we going to do in six months? But here's what he did. He went around to the, the various villages and he just weighed children. He just weighed them. And what he found was in every village – 
there were some kids who were not malnourished. So not malnourished. And it's like, that's so weird. Why do, why do these kids somehow flourish when others struggle? And what he found was that the parents of those children were doing things that were deviant from the norm, but positively deviant. So, they, you know, they, as far as I can remember, that they, they washed their hands more. They fed their kids five small meals a day rather than two big meals a day. They fed them little crabs that other people didn't consider food, just stuff like that. And his insight was within any system, there's always some people who are flourishing mm. when others are struggling. What are they doing and how do we get them to teach the others? And what I love about that is it's data-driven. You find the people who are flourishing and then you figure out what are the levers that they're pushing. So a model like that to me deals with the complexity of the human condition, is both is data-driven and it treats people as adults rather than people being cheap. <laughs> being fixed yeah you know there's a writer i love called peter block and mm. he, he once said look he my work is to give people responsibility for their own freedom and i love that phrase because it just speaks to how often we hand that freedom over to somebody else to decide for us whether it's our organization our boss fate whatever you want to do but to actually say how do you take responsibility for your own freedom and that positive deviancy approach just feels like that's about stepping forward to human potential. Yeah. That's a long, I'm not even sure what the question was anymore, but that's my no, answer. But, but it's, <laughs> it's so interesting. And I, I, that approach resonates with me so strongly. Is it back years ago, back when I was in the health and fitness world, I got really fascinated by, you know, everybody fails in this world. Right. You know, everybody joins a gym. The, the, the number one reason is always to lose weight and everybody fails, you know, mm -hmm. like almost everybody. And, right. and, and, as, and you, you start at a place of failure and then you maintain it the whole time. Right. <laughs> you, know, right. You, you never succeed. You know, and everybody's, like you said, trying to fix somebody who's broken yeah. and very often saying like, okay, let, I, I am going to profess to you that this is right. the answer. You just be quiet, do what I say. And when I was doing a whole bunch of research in that space, there's there was a research project that was done. My recollection is between University of Pittsburgh and maybe Tufts or something like that. I can't remember called the, I may butcher this, um, I think it was the National Weight Control Registry. And their whole approach was, we're not going to study like all the failures, the exact same thing. They said, we're going to look for people who have lost, I think it was a minimum of, of 60 pounds and right. kept it off for five years or longer. Right. And then we're just going to put thousands of them into a database and, and same thing. Uh, what are you doing differently right. than other people? And they started to see the patterns emerge, right. you know, and- that to me is such a fascinating approach to really right. focus on that rather than look at every, you know, try and figure out what everyone else is doing wrong. Just like yeah. the people, like the few outliers who are somehow doing right. something different. And, you know, it, that's been a really, I mean, I think it's Seth Godin, you know, who, who you know, occasionally has a little rant about people re emailing going, can you be my mentor? It's like, come on, people. You don't need a mentor. Or at least you have mentors all around you. Yeah. Find the people who inspire you, provoke you, slightly annoy you, make you go, damn it, <laughs> why aren't I doing that? And then rather than be kind of deflated by their success or, or limited by envy, go, fantastic, what does that teach me? How do I find, see what they're doing and be inspired by that? You know, yeah. everything from like Scott Stratton doing movies early on. I mean, I, I voraciously... 
you know, there's that Tom Peters thing. He goes, look, don't don't suffer from the not invented here syndrome. Embrace stolen with glee. You know, mm. and I'm I'm forever looking at people and going, oh, I love how you did that. Oh, I, I mean, I walk into GLP HQ and I'm like, okay, I just need to redo my entire office now because this is <laughs> elegant and beautiful and spacious. And you've got carpet that makes me just want to lie on the carpet and curl up because it's kind of gray and warm and beautiful. So there's all these moments where you go, uh, if you if you look for it, you can see these moments of inspiration where you go, I can do that. I can step into, I could try that. I could do my own spin on that. Yeah. Well, and Austin Cleon, right? Still like an artist. Right, it's right. Just all the same stuff. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. You brought up the term envy though. I want to actually, I want to dive back into that because I think it's such an interesting concept. And my experience is that envy is always labeled as evil. Right. I saw a paper, I want to say a year or two ago that broke out envy and said, actually, there are two types of envy. There's what I believe they called benign envy and malicious oh, I, I or benevolent that. envy. Yeah. And I, they know, said, I can guess where you're going with this. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. They're like, yeah. Depending on how you respond to envy, it can either be massively destructive and, right. and paralyzing, or it can be an astonishing source of motivation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's great. You know, there are, there are definitely people I look to and I go, I'm never going to be quite there because <laughs> that just feels too much, too far. But gosh, why don't I try? You know, it's that whole you swing for yeah. it, you swing for the stars, you hit the moon or something like that. But I do think, you know, the, the way one way I think about this is so, you know, one of the things that I do to make a buck is to speak. And I love speaking. I love speaking in front of crowds. 
most of the time I'm I don't get too fretty fretty about it. But then there are times where I'm like, uh, you know, I'm going to like, yeah. Right, I'm like raising my hand. Yeah, yeah like, yeah, yeah. I've been there before and I will be there yeah, again exactly. too. <laughs> some audiences I'm cool with, some audiences right. for some reason freak me out. Yeah, I get it. And, and one of the things that I do as much as I can is I shake the hands of as many people as I can uh-huh. as they come in the door. And everybody goes, oh, it's so amazing. You're a keynote speaker and you touch other people. You're amazing. And I'm like, honestly, I'm just doing this for my own sake. Because what this does is it reminds me that everybody here is just a human being and mm. they're just doing their best. Some people have had lucky breaks, some people haven't had lucky breaks, but they're all just here to go, we're normal. And that's part of the balancing thing for me when I look at people who've flourished for one thing or another and I'm like, oh man, I've been I've been doing my podcast for 10 years and this person's on a podcast and six months and they're the number one and they're getting blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, he's probably just a normal person. <laughs> and he's probably just tried something interesting and different. And he probably just fired a cannonball here where I've just been firing, firing bullets. Yeah. So, okay, get over yourself, Michael. Now, what can I learn from this? What, what can it provoke me to think differently about how I show up in the world? Yeah, and I'm I'm mostly wired the same way. So it's, it's cool to hear you say that as well. Although I have to say my response to speaking when I don't feel comfortable in a room is the exact opposite. I just completely hide out behind stage. Right. I'm like shaking and trying not to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're wired a little bit differently a little bit there. Different there yeah. I don't think it's, there's a human out there who just looks around and never has this emotion of man. Right. I I would love to have like that or be that or do that and. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think it's all about what does that do to and for you? Like, how does that, what's your response to that? Does that disable or empower you? Well, I think one of the things to be thinking about is sitting with the question, so what do I want? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I notice is I get triggered by some people who are doing stuff and I'm like, oh, and then I'm like... Actually, when I think about it, I don't, I don't actually want that. <laughs> I just, I've just got an initial visceral reaction to go, that's the thing I want. Yeah. And it's, it's a really hard, powerful question to sit with, which is, what do I want? I mean, I, so, you know, I run a small training company and I went away to this conference a couple of years ago and it was like, okay, you're at this level. Here's how you get to, 5x that level and i came back going this is all i can see it because <laughs> you know i'm one of these kind of bright shiny oh it's a vision i've got it so i'm like i got it and i came back to my wife who's my business partner i'm like marcel this is fantastic i see how we're gonna get to become a five million dollar company in the next three years we're gonna pull this lever and execute on this and blah 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 and because she's been married to me for 25 years she's like a I hate it when you go away and you have time to think because that's a nightmare for everybody else. Nightmare. But secondly, <laughs> and she's so good at this, she's like, okay, fine, that's great, Michael, but is that what you really want? And I was like, oh, oh I don't know. What? Oh, I don't know if that's what I really want. Oh, I probably don't want that. Wait, oh, what do I want? I've sat with that question now for a year. What do I want with a box of crayons? And... Because, you know, I can actually see a path where we just keep growing the revenue and yeah. we, we scale up on impact a bit and scale up on vast amounts of wealth a bit. But I'm just not that I'm just not that driven by that. So that makes me then go, okay, what, what are we trying to achieve yeah. with this company? And sitting with that miserably difficult question, wonderfully provocative question, actually helps 
I think, get you clear on the kind of benevolent envy. Because once you get clear on what you want, then you see people who have some version of that and you go, that's what I can aspire to. Rather than if you're not totally clear on that, that's when you go, oh, I just want what you've got because it looks bright and shiny and interesting. Yeah. And and sometimes even worse, I I I would love to see you fall. Right. Which where I think it gets really dark. Right. Yeah, yeah, you know, for I sure. I think that happens a lot. Um so as you're, as you, I'm curious now, as, as you've been sitting with this question, well, what do I want? You know, mm-hmm. like, okay, you and I are wired so, so yeah. similarly in that. And I work with my wife also. Right. And I'm the like crazy <laughs> out there. Ah, I just saw exactly. the coolest thing. And she's like, okay, let's have a real conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get stuff done. So right. You just calm down. <laughs> okay. So, so now you've been sitting with this yeah. question for a while now. Yeah. Where's your head at? So, 20, 20 years ago, maybe maybe 15 years ago, I, I did some work around the kind of personal vision. What's the impact I want to have in this world? And the, the phrase that I'm, I have never come up with a better one or a smarter one for me anyway is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Now, that, that resonates really well for me. I mean, I still get a little chills when I say it. I don't say it often enough uh, is what I'm just remembering here. Um, but it it has it has grandiose ambition. I mean, how do you touch a billion people? I have no idea. That's a seventh of the entire population of the world. But what it means is to do that, I have to get out of the way. I have to create stuff that just is able to be passed along and spread and kind of ripple out into the world. And then the possibility virus for me is connected to that piece about giving people responsibility for their own freedom. Because... I can't make decisions for people. I don't want to make decisions for people. But I guess what I want in my heart is for people to have the courage to see that they always have a choice. That moment of going, you can't control your circumstances, you control your response to that. And then to make the most courageous choice possible for them. So that's the personal mission that has, has really kind of influenced different things that I've done, different projects that I've taken on. And I think where I'm at at the moment, so we serve corporations mostly at the moment with Box of Crayons. What's clear for me now is I've got to kind of pull myself away from the focus on the corporate work. There's other people who can come in and do run that part of the the right. business. So not shut it down, but just you personally exactly. start to just shift me your focus. Exactly, shift right. my focus. And my task this year is to find disruptors that inspire me. So I so I have this um, I have this wonderful mastermind group, uh, my brain trust as we call ourselves, and we've had this luxury. We've been together for as a little group for ten years. There's six of us: so uh, Jen Loudon, Mark Silver, er- Eric Klein, Michelle Lisenberry Christensen, and Molly Gordon. And so we now all know each other so so well. <laughs> it's fantastic and annoying because they're like, ah, you can't pull that one on us. We know exactly what you're doing here. And so we did our annual retreat back in March. And the thing that they helped me get clear on is I want Box of Crayons to be a disruptive force for good. That's, that feels good to me. That feels interesting to me. But I don't know what disruption means. Mm. And I don't want to just grab the first thing. So at the moment, I feel like I'm back to that firing bullets metaphor. Yeah, It's like a, I, I need to fire some bullets to go, all right, what, what, what is interesting in disruption? Where could I play and where could I be most useful? I mean, it's, it, it's so interesting. It's, as soon as I said that, all sorts of interesting education people started showing up, you know, yeah. connections to people here. It's just like this little wave of people doing cool stuff. And, they, 
And I have, you know, I was a teacher briefly myself. I have three grandparents who were teachers. I have a brother who was a teacher. I'm like, oh, I'm basically a teacher when all we do is we as are you. So part of me is drawn to that, that, but I'm trying not to be suckered into thinking that the first thing that shows up is necessarily the thing. So yeah. it's it's the title of your book. It's like uncertainty. It's like when you're able to sit with the amb- ambiguity, the longer you can sit there. The better the stuff comes. Yeah. Well, the more, you, the more you give the chance for the right. real thing to emerge. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sit with the ambiguity and, and hope something emerges. Yeah, it's so powerful. Um, it's so powerful also just that you're aware it's like you have the you have this meta capability of sort of zooming and not understanding that this is actually where you are, right? You know, and that is not comfortable, and that's okay. And in fact, that's the gateway right. to the answers I'm really looking for because the stuff that's coming up immediately, mm, yeah, it's I decent, mean, it, but it's, it's probably not. It's it. seductive yeah. <laughs> because part of me is like, oh, this is cool, and right. I'm not, I'm not ignoring it. I'm going to, I'm talking to people, but my job is to explore yeah. at this stage. Uh, because I'm easily seduced by the bright, shiny object yeah. thing that shows up, and I'm just, yeah. I've just learned, <laughs> it's, you know, just sit with it for a little bit. Yeah, I love that. Two things really jump out of me also, and this is a little freaky. So just in the last year, because I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of work on, you know, like what's my why mm-hmm. as well, and the two words that I keep landing are are inspire possibility. Oh, beautiful. Which is you know a more ambiguous version of right. your, you know, infect a billion people with an idea, a possibility of us. But but I, same thing. And when I when I think about what we're actually doing with the project, right? Fundamentally, you know, we do create courses and stuff like that, and events which are designed to actually hold people's hands and introduce yeah. them to process, but. I don't think that's actually the thing that stops people. Right. My my increasing experience, I'm curious what you think about this too, is that the real barrier in people's lives is that they just don't believe that a different state, a different way to be in the world is possible. Yeah. And until you actually shift that belief, you can have all the process in the world. You can read all the books in the world, go to all the courses, all the trainings, all the events. Mm-hmm. But if until you shift that belief, nothing will work because yeah. you don't, You'll never actually do anything with it. Do you, do you know the immunity to change work? Have no. you come across that? Oh. So let me talk about that briefly because okay. I love this stuff. So this is, a, this is a book that came out maybe five or six years ago from a couple of Harvard professors in kind of education psychology, Lisa Leahy and Bob Keegan. Bob Keegan's written a bunch of books, all of which are completely unreadable, until he wrote this one, which is awesome. Um, and and here's the key the key idea. There's two types of change. There's technical change and there's adaptive change. Technical change, you read the book, you watch the YouTube video, you practice a bit, you get the hang of it, and you master it. Cool. Adaptive change is that stuff you keep trying to do, <laughs> you keep getting feedback on, you read all the books, then you read more books, then you watch more videos, and for some reason you just can't crack it because it's not about additive and just learning a new skill. It kind of You need a rewiring to kind of get yeah. to the next level. So Keegan and Leahy have this process called immunity to change, which is just so powerful at helping you figure out what's getting in your way. The way they put it is, you got your foot on the accelerator, but it also feels like you got your foot on the brake. Mm. But you don't even know you got your foot on the brake. So let us show you how to put the foot on the brake. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you through this process, and I'll give you an example. This is somewhat past in my life, but it will bring it to life. So the starting point is you try and figure out the one big thing you're looking to change, 
the one big thing that will make the difference. And you know, they say that if it, giving it the spousal test is a good way to do it. So if you go to your spouse and you go, hey, I was thinking I should work on this, they go, for God's sake, I've been telling you for 10 years to do that. Of course that's what you should be doing. How is that not bleedingly obvious? And like, okay, okay, point taken, I get it. All right, so four or five years ago for me the big thing was um, trying to build a team, build a, a team that worked. Now. Technically, did I know how to build a team? Of course I did. I had read every book. I've actually written courses on it, taught courses on it. I still had just this lousy track record of actually having a successful team that worked. So that's the starting point. It's, there's five columns. That's the first column. The second column is you list all the things that you do that are contrary to that big goal that you have set yourself. It's a humbling by which I mean not, oh, I'm humbled to get the award, just that I'm an idiot, <laughs> embarrassed about it. So, you know, for me, it would be like, I work in a very small building, so nobody can physically be in the same room as me. I hire people who are in different countries, so I can never talk to them in the same time zone. I don't give people clear briefs. I fire them because they disappoint me when they they can't read my mind about what I what I wanted. I don't give them any coaching or support. I don't set a vision for the company about what where we're going or why we're doing this. I just give them stuff, random stuff, and I it's this long, embarrassing list. And I was like, oh, it's so embarrassing. Then, and this is where it starts getting interesting, you kind of flip things around. So you go, okay, imagine you were getting the opposite of that. You're doing all of those things that you're currently not doing. What would you be worried about? Okay, so I don't at the moment set a vision. What if you really were setting a clear vision for Box of Crayons? What would you be worried about? Well, I'd be worried that, A, I wouldn't have a vision. <laughs> I wouldn't know where the hell I'm going. Secondly, um, if I created a vision, nobody would actually care or follow me, or they'd think it was a ridiculous vision. Okay, at the moment, you don't give anybody responsibility for running a project. You have to run them all yourself. What if you gave somebody full responsibility for a project? What would you be worried about? I'd be worried they'd make a mess of it. I'd be worried I'd spend my whole time holding their hands and wiping their bottom and kind of looking after them. I'd be worried I, I get no time. You know, I have all these other worries. Right. So And so it goes. So now this is really interesting. I'm starting to see where my worries are around the success. And then the, the one, two, three, fourth column is where you start going, so if that's what you're worried about, you are committed to avoiding that worry. So what are your competing commitments? This is all a bit abstract. So huh. I'm hope, I, I don't set a vision for the company. Why are you worried? Why would I be worried about it? They wouldn't follow me or I would have no vision. So what are you committed to? I'm committed to never setting a vision for Box of Crayons. Uh-huh. So it's like this is not a noble vis- uh, a competing commitment. This is an embarrassing competing commitment, Okay. I don't give people responsibility for a project. What if you did? I'd be worried about spending my whole time looking after them rather than doing my own work. What are you committed to? I'm committed to always putting my own work in front of anybody else's. Now, as you go down this list, you start seeing that my espoused goal to build an awesome team, I have all these competing commitments. Never set a vision, always put my own work in front of others, spend no time with anybody else, never have an awkward conversation about accountability. I'm like, well, no wonder I'm not building a team. And so then the final column is you go, okay, what if you broke those commitments? What would happen? What's the really bad stuff that would happen? And for me, I have a really familiar pattern. It'd be like, okay, I I set a vision. Nobody follows me. The business crumbles. My wife leaves me. The house, I get evicted. And I end up dead in the the pavement drinking at the age of 49. 
So I'm like, well, no wonder I don't want to build a team because I can see where it lands. It ends up with me an alcoholic in a gutter somewhere. No reading a book is going to fix that. And then the, what you start doing is you start building little tests that challenge the, the underlying commitments and the assumptions yeah. about the doom that's going to happen. And you start breaking the system down. Yeah. It's a really elegant way to suddenly uncover why you keep trying to do stuff and you never quite get there. Yeah, that is so powerful. I, yeah. can't, I can't wait to dive into that. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's outstanding. Um, and I'm really skeptical of this stuff because most change stuff, not worth the paper it's written on, but yeah. that stuff is resonant. It, it seems like such a logical process too when you actually think about it. It's funny, I've asked a number of people the question when somebody, there was a scenario where somebody was sort of arming themselves with a particular argument that was absolutely stopping them from doing all the things that similarly they <laughs> right. professed them to want to do. And God knows I've probably done that a million times myself, right? Oh, so I'm not pointing my hand up as anybody well. else yeah. out. <laughs> exactly. And for some reason I turned to them and I, and I said, well, I said, if this is your normal pattern, I'm just, I'm really curious. If you keep doing it, it's obviously serving some purpose in your life. Right. What is that purpose for you? That's it. They get, you're getting to the same thing, which is yeah. what's, the, what's the deeper commitment you're getting right. to. Yeah. And and I just kind of, you know, like we left the conversation and blew it off. and But the person didn't blow it off. Right. The person went deep into trying to answer this question. And it triggered, it set off a series of things that were really astonishing that I I, I don't think either of us saw coming. And I right. didn't entirely intend just in my question. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, that sounds a very similar experience to what this immunity yeah. change process uh, What's brilliant about the immunity change process is it's just got a rigor to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, I love okay, that. column five, this is what this is what you're answering. And it's what's brilliant is it it fools people like me. <laughs> so like I am really good because I'm a trained coach, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, at yeah. avoiding hard conversations. I'm like, I am slippery. <laughs> and it's like I can do self-deprecation. I can do pseudo deep thinking. So it sounds like I'm struggling with so something. You're like a therapist's worst nightmare. Yeah, basically. exactly. I'm like, you just you just try and pin me down. You're never going to catch me. And the first time I did this immunity change process, I literally spent time hiding under a blanket. I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea how I'm telling you this stuff, but somehow you've tricked me into revealing this. What? And then we're just 15 minutes into this conversation. What just happened? That's amazing. So that's part of what's brilliant about it is because it feels rigorous in a process. You can't trick the system. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to. And friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com slash goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash goodlife and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife.
the second thing that I want to circle back to was this notion that we started a conversation talking about you throughout the Boulder, good to great guy. Jim Collins. Jim Collins, yeah. the idea of, you know, like the cannonballs and, and just like this, the small shots. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, you've built what's from the outside looking in appears to be this, you know, it's rocking and rolling. You're phenomenally yeah. successful. It's a respected company. You're a respected person in your field. And so you're, you've got the cannonball. Right. Right. And at the same time, you've now hit a window where like, it's time to actually go back. Right. I you know, because it's bullets. not, there's no yeah. there there. And I think right. that's one of the big jarring things that really freaks people out is that, you know, you don't just stop. Like at some point, you actually have to go back to that place where you don't know what's right. next or else you just end up going sideways and then you become miserable. Yeah. Oh, do you think that's true for everybody? I mean, I know that is true for me. I know that I'm restless. And if I hit a plateau, you know, in an earlier book I wrote, I was like, the difference between good work and great work. And good work is your job description. It's getting things done, and that's yeah. important. But great work is that next step into work that has more impact and more yeah, meaning. Yeah, I, I don't think it's true for everybody. Yeah. I, I would like to believe it's true for yeah. everybody. Because, I th- and yeah, I would like to think that everybody is wired for growth and yep. everybody is wired. But I think it's also, it's probably good <laughs> that right. in a weird way, I wonder if life is easier if you're not wired that way. Because right. you can be, you can come to a place of being content. Yep. Probably with greater ease. I'm not wired that way. And maybe just... You know, it's the bias of who I surround myself with. Most of the people that I interact with on a daily basis are not wired that way either. And I wonder too, how much, if you're at a place, there's a really slippery slope between being wired for contentment and being wired for complacency. See, I think that's a really useful distinction because I was just thinking the same, which is there's a way you you can plateau and you become complacent is a good word. But I think there's also something to say, are, are you able to have the wisdom to be content mm. rather than, you know, blowing up your own happiness? Yeah, totally. And, and having the wisdom to discern between those is so, is so, Huge. so hard and Huge. so important because I bet you there are times where I've shot myself in the foot going, ah, this is, I'm too happy. We, just, we can't carry on like this. You know, screw it up somehow. You know, make it difficult for yourself because I like the struggle. Yeah. And so part of it is around that piece around understanding your own, how your own patterns collude in, in making your life more miserable than it needs to be. And just, yeah. I know I, you know, I, I know I have, you know, restless blow things up syndrome so i have so many people around me going focus michael no focus no michael focus no michael yeah. focus no okay go off and do that in a little sandbox you can do that right but don't don't, don't leave, leave this hey, alone don't, okay? don't blow away yeah, yeah. yeah stop 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 meddling <laughs> right yeah i, I mean it's yeah, i so agree with that it's there are definitely times i i felt that way as well and and from the outside in too i think sometimes there are times where we blow things up just because we're getting mm-hmm. to a point where it feels too good and we're not comfortable feeling that good. Yeah. And I think the opposite is also true. There are times where we should blow stuff up, but we're, we I don't agree. because we're comfortable. It's a bit like buying low and selling high. Yeah. You know, you take your best guess. But I think what's important is you're, you're mindful about the choice that you're yeah. making. And you go, I may be wrong, 
because you can never be right all the time. But I may be wrong, but this is the gamble I'm going to take. And yeah. I'm going into it eyes wide open. Yeah, being intentional, I think, is the key. Yeah. And again, like you said, that absolutely doesn't mean that you can choose right. <laughs> I wish it did. <laughs> Man, that would be so much easier. Yeah, so like, yeah, again, being intentional, that means I get the right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I choose I get, right, right. I get to win. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow, that would be so cool. <laughs> Sadly, it's not, Sadly the, not, not yeah. the reality. I want to make sure that we squeeze it. You and I can just jam on this stuff for a long time. Exactly. We're going Tim Ferriss on people. I mean, we're just going to have a <laughs> nine-hour podcast here. <laughs> Let's do it. Your latest work, you've got to book out on questions. I have. It's called The Coaching Habit. You know, I wrote it for, for the really thinking about the busy manager, person in organization, trying to do their best, committed. To, they like their work. They like their team. But I'm kind of feeling a bit overwhelmed, trying to do too much. And that whole piece around trying to do more great work rather than just trying to get the good work on. So, yeah, it's got to focus on seven essential questions and kind of the mechanisms of building, making them a habit. Yeah. I, one of the things I love about the approach also is that you take, you know, like the quote coaching. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? This is really let's let's just break it down. Let's demystify it. Let's deconstruct right. it. Let's unfancify it. Yeah. And you know what? You could accomplish a huge percentage of what the entire process is about if you just know seven questions. <laughs> so, so Peter Block, who's this guy I love, is a role model for me, an intellectual role model. And one of, probably the peak, one of the peak moments of my professional career is he wrote a blurb for my very first book. So excited because I was like, I was even less known than I am now. So complete nobody, but somehow because he's a grumpy old guy, somehow he got him in a good mood, and he wrote this little blurb for this first book called. And he says, "Look, coaching is not a profession; it's a way of being with each other." And I was like, "Oh, I didn't even know I believed that." But that's the thing. It's just like every. I'm not really trying to create coaches. I just want people to be a bit more coach-like in the way they show up and they interact with people, which fundamentally is just, can you just stay curious just a little bit longer and a rush to advice and action just a little more slowly? And it's going to make such a big difference for everybody involved. Yeah. I, I, I love that. It's like you're all coaches. Yeah. You don't know it. Right. But you all have the ability in some way, shape or form in like a child's life or a friend's life right. and everybody every day. It's not about sitting down saying, let's have a session. It's just about when you interact with everybody every day on any level, right. you have an opportunity to make a difference. And very often yeah, the biggest yeah. part of that is not by saying this is what you should do, but by doing the exact opposite. I did a podcast with a guy yesterday and he was like, oh, let me tell you the story because you know I read your book and, I, and my daughter came into the bathroom this, this morning, six-year-old, and she's crying. And he's like, oh, parent, you know, responsive. But he's like, okay, rather than comfort her. I'm just going to ask her how she's doing. So ask the kind of question, you know, what's on your mind? What do you, she's like, Oh, I want to, I, I want to wear short sleeves, not long sleeves. And he's like, okay. But then, you know, the second question in the book, and I, I boldly go, it's the best coaching question in the right. world. And it's simply, and what else? Because the first answer is never the only answer. So he goes, oh, remember that. He goes, and what else? It's like, I really want summer to be here. And I was like, oh, I know. And then and then he went, okay, oh, that's so good. But he's going to, I'll ask one more time. And what else? And then she told him the real thing, which he, he kept private to, you know, for her yeah, privacy. But he was like, it, it completely changed everything. I didn't have to fix anything. She just needed to, to speak out loud this final thing. And uh, honestly, best moment of yesterday, him telling me the story of just how that three-minute interaction with his daughter 
shifted from his normal parenting style just to a, a different experience. Yeah, I, it's so powerful to just think. I mean, it's funny, like I, the first two questions, which you just shared, yeah. you know, like what's on your mind and, and tell me, yeah. you know, like what else? If you just ask those two questions, you know, right. like if you just found opportunities to yeah. continually ask those, I mean, what an, like a stunning difference. Right. How would that change your, your daily experience and how would that potentially right. change your relationships with others? And how might it help them in a way where you thought you were being really helpful before? Yeah. But you really, that's not what they needed. Yeah. That word helpful is a really interesting one yeah. because, you know, we, so many of us, I'm pretty much sure there's 100% compliance for people listening to this podcast, uh, helpful people, they have good hearts, they want to be, they want to try and assist the people around them. But so often, sometimes there's a place for giving advice, it's just a lot less than people think. You know, mm -hmm. if you can be present, if you can ask a question, if you can really hear their answer, if you can help them speak what going on for them what's in their heart and in their head that can be so much more useful than you trying to fix the first thing that they happen to mention not least because the first thing is never the thing <laughs> it's just the first thing that happens to come up yeah I, I wonder often if you know um we're really looking to be expressed not fixed right know, and that's the opportunity that we're taking by trying to fix all the time well i think that's yeah and the thing that as i've been thinking about this Part of it's also just uh, connecting back to uncertainty because when you're giving somebody advice, it's a far more comfortable place to be. Mm, true. Right? I'm in control of the conversation. Yeah. I'm the smart one in the conversation. I know where this is going. I'm adding value in inverted commas. So you just feel good about yourself even though your advice is probably wrong or at least not very good and it's probably not going to be listened to and it's probably not going to be acted upon. At least you're you're at least you're clear about what's happening when you when you ask the question you step into a place of more ambiguity you know was that a good question was it the right question what are they going to say <laughs> will i know how to handle what they're about to say what if they come with some crazy answer that i don't know what to say about oh i don't even have control of the conversation anymore now they have control of the conversation it's a harder place to sit but to what we said before and what you say in your book you know that place of being able to sit with ambiguity can serve you and others better. Yeah. Um, that's, that's one of those things you just threw out also really just like hit me, which is like, what if I ask the question and then they say what's on their mind and I don't have, I don't know how to respond. Right. Like I, like I don't know what to do next. Right. And that's for somebody who's genuinely wired to help also, that's, that's like a terrifying thought. It is. Right. <laughs> it totally is. And of course you're able to say, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to know what to do. You can just sit there going, "Wow, right. that's I, I wouldn't even know what to do." And I think a lot of that, that, but that's I think a lot of the thing that helps, right? Is just yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm here with you. Exactly. Like that's in that is enough. I, I feel the enormity yeah. of whatever this thing is, and I get it. You yeah. know, and they're like, "You get me." That, yeah. that I just wanted to be heard. I wanted to be expressed. Thank yeah. you. I think that's huge. Yeah. I love that. There's also an interesting backstory with this book, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, this is the book that almost killed me. <laughs> and it has to be said that, because I know a bunch of people who listen to this are, are writers and are probably have books published or thinking about trying to publish a book and the like. And so this is my my fifth book. So honestly, I was like, I know how to write books now. I'm pretty good at it. You know, I've got four books. None of them were awful to write. I mean, they're, they're all 
awful in their way. You know, you start off and you think you've got an idea and then you write this first draft and it's terrible. And you're like, that's okay. I read somewhere that first drafts are always terrible. So then you write a second draft, that's terrible as well. You're like, oh, that's worrying. And fourth draft, it's still pretty bad, but you're getting better at it. But finally you get there. This book, I, I wrote four versions of this book before I wrote a fifth version that worked. And part of it was the misery of trying to work with my publisher. So I had a, I, for Do More Great Work, I had a fancy New York publisher, and they did a nice job of it. And they're, like, keen to get me to write my next book, and I'm keen to get them to publish my next book. So I pitch it to them, and they're like, mm, no, I'm not sure about that. And I went, okay. And then uh, I, I hired an agent, and that was a bad mistake as well. It didn't work at all. Another messy time. But what I found, Jonathan, is that at a certain point, I completely lost the plot mm. <laughs> because the publisher was going, so we love it, <laughs> but we don't love it. We love you, but we don't really love it. So we don't know what the book is you should write, but it's whatever. It's not this. So I was then in this position of going, okay, why don't I try and write the book that I think that they want to read, even though they don't know what it is, and even though they don't really publish business books, which is what I'm trying to write, so I just was, I was just lost. You know, I was wandering in the wilderness writing bad version, bad books. And I finally, I had this moment of realizing what was happening because I have this, I get kind of suckered into trying to please authority. It's one of my little hooks. And I was like, oh, done it again. <laughs> so uh, in December, what is it, 2014, I was like, okay, I've got back to the vision of what this book is about. And I kind of gave them an ultimatum. I'm like, at this stage, I'm past, really minding what your decision is but it's either a yes or a no you gotta let me know and they were like it's a no i'm like well how dare you <laughs> don't you know who i am and then i was like okay well that's fine and i rolled up my sleeves and i'm like okay what now and i remember us going for a walk around here and talking about yeah. it about this time do i go do i try and find another publisher because you know i know enough people to get an introduction to an agent or a publisher to make something happen but i was like no you know what i'm going to self-publish it and I'd self-published a couple of books before, but this time I was like, okay, what would it be to self-publish as a professional rather than as an amateur? Because I think it's it's relatively easy to self-publish as an amateur now. You know, there's so many good things. You can get a PDF, upload it, design a cover. Yeah. You're going to get an okay book through Amazon or any of the other kind of publishing things. But I was like, we're going to self-publish it. And honestly, totally fantastic experience such a good experience i'm i'm <laughs> i'm now kind of frothing at the mouth self-publish self-publish everybody everybody yeah it's really good yeah and and it's a beautiful book and thank you well designed beautifully edited and i think that's one of the big things is that there like you said the you know the world is flattened when it comes to publishing mm -hmm. we all have access we can all we all have you know keyboards and computers and and whatever WordPressers you want to, and and we can all easily save it as a PDF and upload it, and yep. basically pay a little bit of money and get it, you know, listed as a book for sale. And at the same time, because of that, there the volume of stuff that's a quote book for sale now is vast, yeah. absolutely vast, vast, and which mediocre. makes it right, <laughs> which makes it that much more important that if you're going to take this path, yeah, you treat it like a professional, and you're like, you know, I need to. Same way it would be if I was working with a publisher. Right. I need an editor. Right. I need a copy editor. I need a designer, right. you know, and we need somebody. And really say, like, this book is going to be indistinguishable from something that exactly. would be put out. And exactly. that, I think, is a huge difference maker, especially when you're self-publishing in 
the nonfiction and prescriptive nonfiction world. Yeah. Fiction world, I think the, the expectations are still really high also, but at least ebooks in the fiction world right. tend to take off a lot more easily. For sure. Yeah. You know, so if you have a killer story, people are more forgiving. Whereas in the, the nonfiction and prescriptive right. nonfiction, it's because it's so it just catches fire. So it's so much harder to have that catch fire. Yeah. In the ebook form at least. It's you really have to differentiate yourself. I mean, it's funny, we were talking about that immunity to change piece and like yeah. building a team. How <laughs> terrible I was at building a team. And so, you know, that's, this is immunity. I actually built a fantastic team. I actually asked for help. And this goes against my, my instincts because every part of me, I've got two things. One is I can do everything. I've got that <laughs> in my head. And secondly, I'm cheap. <laughs> so it's a terrible combination. I'm like, huh, I could hire somebody to build a space shuttle, but, you know, I could probably figure it out. <laughs> How hard is it to build a space shuttle? So, you know, I asked Seth Godin, and he introduced me to his editor, Catherine, fantastic, just brilliant job. I did some research and found a Canadian award-winning designer, and I hired him. I'm like, this is an award-winning designer, but I'm like, you know what? My book's going to deserve an award-winning. And then I met, and this was really a critical piece for us. There's a company called Page Two Strategies. They're based out in Vancouver. They're two people from the publishing world who set up to help people self-publish as professionals. That's the phrase I've got in my own head. And what they did was helped navigate the broader field. So if you're looking to go beyond just getting the book on Amazon, but you want to think about distribution and you want to think about sales cycles and you want to think about the audio book that goes with the e-book, you want to think about the, the launch, that's where their expertise comes in. And so for me, it was just such a pleasure to go, wow, I've got this highly functioning team of people who are all experts in their own way. I'm actually trusting them, (laughs) which is like an amazing thing to watch myself do. And now I have this book where I go, there's not a single piece of this book that I don't love. I love it. Mm. I just, and I don't hate it (laughs) because that's what sometimes happens. By the time you finally get to the end of your book, you're like, honestly, I never want to see this book (laughs) again. The glimmer of love I had for this book has been crushed by the publishing process, but that hasn't happened to me with this book. I love it. So I just want to reiterate your point, which is, you know, if you want to self-publish and if you're in that kind of, particularly in that nonfiction piece, you want to ask yourself, am I doing this as an amateur or as a professional? And they're both good answers. You just want to be clear what you're up for. Because if you're going to, you know, there's that, what is that quote? It's like, I think it was Napoleon. He said, look, if you're going to take Rome, take Rome. You know, it's like cannonballs. If you're going to fire a cannonball, fire a cannonball. And that's what it felt like we did with this book is we we fired a cannonball on the self-publishing piece. And it, and it, that was just such a good thing. Yeah, I yeah. love it. It's so cool to see. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, especially after, like, I remember a conversation we had, it feels like a couple of years ago, yeah. going back where you were, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm like in the weeds, big uh, time. Weeds? And... I was dreaming of being in the weeds. <laughs> I was in the grate under the sewer that yeah. leads to the, the trickle that leads to the weeds. Right, and to see that, you know, you actually, you found your way out yeah. and that you actually stuck to something that was, like, you felt like this is this is the thing. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't really care if somebody else validates it externally and says it fits with the thing that they want to put into the world. Right. This is the thing that that matters to me and that I want to put into the world and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do it at an astonishing level. And that's – so it's so cool to actually see it out in the world and and then to read it and realize this right. is awesome and then to see it make a really big difference. Yeah, You can't be fooled by thinking that people actually know – it's so easy to hand authority to other Man. people. So – I'd gone through this whole process and I and I was on track with this wonderful piece. And then there's other publishing house associated with a big management association 
they got they heard about it they got interested and they're like yeah it sounds fantastic and i was like oh wow that'd be cool publishing through them i get they got a huge database blah 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 worth the conversation so i send it to this uh person who goes great i'm the head of the editing unit i send it to one of my editors i get this feedback going you know the tone's not very good and the structure's not very good and i'm really not sure you've got enough substance here so we might be interested but it would need a complete rewrite and i was like that's hilarious because i have been through all that and you have no idea how pleasurable it is to hear this and just go dear bob you know, honestly, I think the structure is fantastic. I think the tone is spot on, and I'm just delighted with how this book is going. So I guess we won't be working together. Send. <laughs> Zip. I'm not entertaining the moment of doubt because I've got so clear on what what actually I want for this. I love that. It's so cool. So I think we have to kind of come full circle. <laughs> We've only been or gone three hours. Right yeah. <laughs> into the evening hours. So, um, so the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that phrase out to you to live a good life, what comes up? I would say that, you know, that question we asked about what do you want? It's about answering that. What do you want? Because as soon as you land on that at a truly deep way, you know, this at a heartfelt way, this is what I want. That's what open, that's what gives you permission to pursue that. And a less good life is when you haven't got clear on what you want yet. So you're chasing rabbits that aren't the rabbits for you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the Reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it, and then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community, who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.